Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan and Janelle and I are with Dr. Amy Erickson tonight talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but more specifically about how God didn't create the world for us to screw it up. And so looking at some biblical um, hermeneutical, exegetical, good kind of stuff that those are words maybe she can define later. I realize when I use those words with other friends, they right, immediately they like, they look at me cross eyed like they I've have never, no idea. They're like so what? Yeah, I'm like why do I keep using hermeneutical? Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I like I haven't been to seminary in like almost two decades now, yeah. and I still use them. And mm-hmm. I had a friend call me up the other day, say, "Dude, you you've lost me on Herman Herman." <laughs> so, but we're gonna talk, get a little bit nerdy tonight about the the Bible and how that uh, really plays into the 21st century as well. But we're gonna get down to an ancient sort of world before we do that. Um, And so good to have you. Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty fun to be here so far. (laughs) I I promise. I promise this will not be too scary. So if you want to know more about what we do on the local level, go to brewtheology.org. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at brewtheology, brew underscore on Twitter, and you can find all the good stuff there and share it and like it. And if you want to actually give the podcast some love, go to iTunes Rate that, review that. We're also on Podbean. Share that with your friends. Google Play. Stitcher Radio. Mm-hmm. Po- Pocket Cast. Pretty much wherever you can find a podcast, I think we're out there. All right. So, so we, professional. We typically, when we have our table conversations, Amy, we um, we start with religious pedigree background. Like, okay, so, and we try to keep it short, but for you, we'll let you go a little bit longer because, you know, you are the theologian of the hour, so to speak. Short yeah. on background, you mean? Well, like, we, we, in our groups, like yeah. we, we like, hey, we're going to have this conversation tonight. Here's the topic. Here are the guidelines. Like, hey, but introduce yourself. Tell us your religious background and then how you would identify or label yourself today. So, for instance, like Janelle and I, we, as we told you earlier, grew up Southern Baptist. She grew up Nazarene. And we're no longer that. Uh, there's a backstory there. So you can give a little bit more of a backstory. Our listeners have heard ours countless was, times, yeah. hundreds of times. Oh, so uh, I shouldn't ask. And so, we'll do it later. Yeah, you yeah, can you, ask. You can ask. You can tell us <laughs> totally. why we changed. That's cool, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's always kind of fun to hear where people have come from. And then this is, and now you're a, an associate professor of uh, Hebrew Bible at Island yes, School of Theology. Distinguished. Yes. 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 <laughs> and lucky because you have a full-time job. I have a tenured <laughs> position. Yes, I am very fortunate. Right. So I grew up with a father who was a UCC pastor and he left the church when I was 10. And um, I suppose you could say it wasn't under the best conditions. So through my adolescence and through college, I wasn't interested in church at all. And then I don't know, I got into my mid twenties and I started asking questions about Christianity and, you know, what is this all about? And people that I knew were exploring Buddhism and all sorts of other kinds of traditions that sounded more exotic. And I thought that the thing to do would be to explore my own tradition first before I started experimenting. And so I mean, I kind of went to seminary on a whim. I didn't realize when I... That's amazing (laughs) right there because how often do you come across somebody, oh, I just went to seminary on a whim. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, Do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that your dad was a pastor a little bit? Yes, I think so. So um, my dad is kind of a deep, dark guy and being a pastor was really difficult for him. So there was... uh, alcoholism and depression involved with it. So I was really curious about how the church had ruined him. And I really wanted to know, like, 
I think a lot of us have been ruined by the church or hurt by the church. Um, so yeah, so I had a lot of questions, but I'm a student. So the way that I tend to get those questions answered is in the classroom. So when I went to seminary, I was kind of naive or ill-informed because I didn't realize that everybody else was planning on being a pastor. I sort of thought that there would be other people (laughs) there who would be just asking questions about the tradition. And then I really got into the Hebrew Bible and had amazing teachers. And yeah, so here I am, biblical scholar. I know all these, all these years later, look at you. Yeah. I mean, which is, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I'm I'm a little envious. There was a one point in my ministry career where I thought I'm going to get one of those PhDs and I'm going to be a biblical scholar, but no. I, I like the practice too much as a practitioner, yeah. uh, but I, I love what the theological world does for practitioners. So I still toy around with them like, hey, you know, it'd be kind of fun to have that degree, but you actually get to live the dream. Yeah, I really do. <laughs> it's it's not fair. But yeah, I was telling my students the other day that I thought that they should study Hebrew, not necessarily because it would make them better exegetes or better pastors, but because it will make them see the world differently. Yeah. So to inhabit that language. I mean, that was the other thing that grabbed me about the Hebrew Bible is the the language is so it's so it so speaks to me. It almost expresses the way that I experience the world better than English in a way. So there was sort of a almost homecoming experience to so cool. learning Hebrew. <laughs> yes, I mean, how how did you fall in love with the Bible? Because you speak about this rich language. The other night when you were at the pub, you were talking about just the beauty of the text and the richness of it. And as you were an English major, weren't yeah. you? And so you were yeah. like a literature buff and still are today Yeah, because you have to be right. If you're, you got to read a lot of books. You got to read a lot of yeah. books. Yeah. Not just in Hebrew, but in English too. In English. Yeah. The scholarship can be kind of a bitch, but uh, the Hebrew stuff is good. Yeah. The Bible, the biblical literature Cause, cause I, is always pe- people interesting. People always thought yeah. I was weird when I would say, in seminary, like I loved Hebrew. I didn't like Greek. I thought Greek was actually, I did not even like though Greek. it should have been no, e- me easier neither. for me because it, it relates more to English. Hebrew mm. is like some other coded weird thing with characters that you got to reframe your brain, but it, it touched my soul in a way. And it could be because I'm also a wannabe Jew and uh, I, a lot of people know that about me by now, but there you go. I'm a wannabe Jew. I get that. So there's a part of me that said that language is, um, well, it's like, the the Greek was like everybody everybody talked Greek back in the day. Hebrew though, that's that's pretty it's pretty unique. It still is. Yeah, yeah. Well, we used to laugh in grad school because you'd get the New Testament people and the Old Testament people, and we call it the Old Testament because it was a conservative, more conservative Christian seminary, Princeton Seminary. Uh, I mean, not conservative by the standards of the country, but conservative by mainline standards. Um, But anyway, you get New Testament and Old Testament people in a room and you could always tell the New Testament people would sort of go off on like philosophy and all this abstract stuff and all the Hebrew Bible people would be like, just tell me a story. Uh So I think the fact that the Hebrew Bible is so much about story and so much about poetry and uh, allusions and the language, other mythological traditions from the ancient Near Eastern world, like that stuff just gets me. So, yeah. So are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Oh, yeah. Game of Thrones you talked about the other night. Game of Thrones, huge fan. Yeah. And I feel like the Hebrew Bible sort of offers you a world 
that's comparable to what you would find in like a George R. R. Martin story or in a Tolkien story. So you get to inhabit this completely sort of parallel universe. Apparently this is called a paracosm because I've said this before and somebody told me that that's what that is. So it's a world that is like our own. They face similar moral conflicts and have similar kinds of questions, but everything else looks kind of weird and slant, like there are elves and orcs and things like we that. We need elves. So, I think we do need elves. That's absolutely right. <laughs> God, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so this ancient language, ancient world, uh, not to be confused with actually Lord of the Rings people. Some, I think there's some Christians out there that probably have replaced the Bible with Lord of the Rings. And and then a bunch of liberal Christians with Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I'm happy about this because I love those, yeah. but I feel like the Hebrew Bible is this much underappreciated literature. Yeah. And if we just spent a little more time with it and maybe had the right guides through it, we could appreciate it for the sort of crazy fantasy fun that it is. Dark fun, but fun. And tonight we will talk about the funness of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Okay. I To get Greek on our Western-minded listeners, I used words earlier, exegetical or exegete. You know, you can define that one, that term, and then hermeneutics, hermeneutical, because that's what we're, that's what you're doing. That's what you did with our group in a way that was very 21st century relevant, which I really appreciated. So how about just, yeah, defining terms is always fun. All right. So... Exegesis from the Greek means to bring out, to lead out. So in the sort of old school understanding of what you did with the biblical text, sort of like a box and you would open it up and there would be the meaning. So exegesis is, it's kind of a fraught term. So it basically just means an interpretation, but it's a little, um, maybe has some outdated ideas embedded in it. So as if meaning were something you could just pull out. And what we know now from hermeneutics is that it has so much to do with where you're reading from, with the lens that you bring to it, the perspective that you bring to it. So biblical scholars now are thinking a lot about the context of the reader and how that determines your interpretation. So you're telling the listeners and us that our cultural assumptions and all the presuppositions that we bring to our daily life is also brought to the text. Yes, I am. And do you want an example? So I'm teaching <laughs> yeah. class right yeah. now. Well, it's funny because I, yeah. I think so many people say, well, the Bible told me this. And I'm like, well, yeah, which, you know, from from what perspective? So anyway, it's good. But- <laughs> good. Yes, that's the proper response. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd love an example. <laughs> yeah. So I'm teaching this class right now called Food, Faith and the Land, which is a blast. We actually went to a farm the other day because how can you understand agrarian and farming imagery if you've never had your hands in the dirt? And we pulled carrots and stuff at an organic farm. It was great. But one of the things I was telling my students is that there's probably a reference to food on every page of the Bible, definitely the Hebrew Bible, probably the New Testament too, but I don't spend as much time there. So I can't say that with authority. And until about a decade ago, people weren't asking questions about food. So it wasn't until we started to wonder about our own food that we started to look to the text and ask, well, what does food mean to them? What did they actually eat? Um, how did they feast together? What, what, what were the symbolic resonances of the food that they ate? And what were the things they weren't supposed to eat? Um, and why? So a lot of the questions about food that are really rooted in actual material food, not just sort of Eucharistic understandings or symbolic understandings of food, 
That's a question that we ask now because it matters to us. It's been there in the text all along, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't see it till now. So. Oh, speaking of text, do you guys know, I'm sure you, you, I mean, I'm sure we all do, tonight ended Yom Kippur. And maybe this is a PS at the end of the episode because that would be fun to rabbit trail, rabbit hole on that topic. I know it's a big one. That would be good. Well, I just finished a book on the book of Jonah and Jonah is the Haftarah reading for um, Yom Kippur. So we could definitely talk about that. That is the day of That'd atonement. Cool. Uh, we have the 10 days of awe leading up to that. Um, so, that, oh, I love this. Is, this is my wannabe Jew thing. I didn't actually do anything Jewish this year. I'm sorry, God. He <laughs> 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 oh, might well. smite you. I know. I know. Yeah, well, that, which depending on which God and which leads us to the types of guys and personalities that we have in this text that describe God. So even in the ancient world, these writers, they came to, well, as the oral tradition that became written later uh, with their own sort of cultural understandings of God as well. Um, So let's back up though. So the topic tonight is God didn't create the world for us to screw it up. Colon, biblical perspectives on the environment. So you're coming to this uh, not as a modern day environmentalist, although that is very important to you. And even two weeks ago when you were with us at the pub, you had talked a lot about that. And a lot of people, I think they, they wanted more of that. I said, guys, I was thinking to myself, she's a biblical scholar. You know, like, come on, talk about the Bible. And in fact, yeah. not to throw my table under the bus, but somebody at my table, I, I was reading one of these questions about Genesis 2 and and they were like, well, well, let's not talk about the Bible. I said, no, that's actually why you came here tonight. You knew the topic ahead of time. So if you're listening right now, you knew that we were t- talking about the Bible, yeah. which leads us to the environment. These are, those are implications there for sure that we're, that we're going to deal with. Um, but this story, this creation story, it's been used as a weapon of exploitation um, to tear down basically the world that we live in. Think that the the good world that we are are seeing people uh, protest and strike and and globally really trying to make this this movement heard, but yet people have used these texts to say, oh, that's that's pointless and useless. And in fact, Genesis tells us that we are uh, to lord you know over the earth and subdue it, and we have dominion over it. And so then, I mean, I, I've heard I don't know if Janelle, if you have, mm-hmm. I've heard sermons with pastors who've said. Well, you know, global warming, global cooling, whatever. I've heard them both. And it doesn't really matter because God's going to do what he's going to do with the world anyway. So there's an understanding from, and I've heard this once from a professor. He said, uh, where you start is where you end, right? Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. theology, which leads to practical theology, I hope theology becomes practical. Uh, So walk us through, if you can, and we have plenty of time here, Genesis 1 Re- reframing and rewiring people's brains to understand that text, even the words of, you know, cause the word they do say, it does say subdue. It does say that we have dominion, like those yes. kinds of things. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but you talk about there's a greater context to that, that, yeah. is, that we yeah. need to grasp if we're going to make the world a better place and not screw it up. Right. Right. Well, and okay. So I'll start by saying, I don't feel like I have to rescue the Bible. So there's a way in which, I come to it as a lover of the material, but I don't think that each and every text says something that I want to hear or that aligns with where I think we ought to be on the environment. So Genesis 1 is 
it is a little bit problematic. Um, I don't think it's as problematic as some have said, and I certainly don't think it gives license to people to just run roughshod over the environment and exploit it to their purposes. I think that would be completely inconsistent with the ancient Israelite understanding of creation and of the earth in particular. But I do think that there are some problems with this text. The first one being the language of conquest. So I think that the priestly writer. Do you want me to get into authorship? Do you want to set us up for that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That could be helpful because most people just think JEDP is like, is that like another thing for a people group? Is that another translation? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You just add it on the end of like GLBT. LGBT. Well, so one of the first things that I think is helpful to think about when we encounter a text is the author and the author's historical context. Not that we can always know as much as we want to know about that and not that biblical scholars don't fight about that, but to at least start with what were they trying to do? What question were they trying to address? And so we call the priestly writer P um, and he is, I say he, but it's actually a group of people. It's a tradition that a number of people were working in, but um, he's responsible for portions of the Torah. So the first five books of the Bible with the Pentateuch, people refer to it by different names. And he is not only an author, he's also a redactor. So that's a good biblical scholar term, right? Mm-hmm. So the redactor is kind of like an editor, but he's not just editing somebody else's work. He's also creating. So, So he kind of looks at all of this material that he has compiled from other authors and other traditions and is putting that all together and says, aha, this is my chance. I'm going to write the first chapter of the Torah and start with my point of view. And we think that the priestly writer was writing in exile, in the Babylonian exile. So do I need to go back and like rehearse that history or is that what happened in 586? BC. Realizing these Babylonians? I'm just talking as if this is going to make sense it. to your average listener. I have no idea. Probably they don't uh, think about this stuff on a regular basis. So of course, Israel is in the land of Canaan for a period of time. There is a monarchy, lots of um, sort of empires who are over Israel. And eventually Israel is paying uh, tribute to these empires and they fail to do so because they think they can get away with it. And the Babylonians come in and destroy them. This is the Southern kingdom of Judah and they are exiled, or at least the elites are exiled to Babylon. Um, and so the priestly writer and his group, we think were in Babylon outside of the land, longing to go back, trying to maintain some sense of community and um, writing texts and using texts as a way to bolster their identity. So in the absence of the temple, the Jewish people eventually become the people of the book. This is kind of during that transition period when texts and books become more important or become important because the temple is not available to them. So P is trying to sort out, like, what's the deal with our God? Because it looks like our God has been defeated by the Babylonian chief deity, Marduk. How can that be? And they come up with this really great explanation, which is, no, actually, 
Our God is the God of the entire universe, of all the world, and um, and Marduk is under him. And so partly what this text is doing is asserting Yahweh's superiority over all other gods and um, and saying basically what you see on the ground is not real. So it looks like Marduk's in charge, but actually God is. And God is such a inf- uh, superior deity that God doesn't have to use violence to create the world because there are all these creation stories that involve Marduk um, slaying other gods who take the form of sea monsters and that sort of thing in order to create the world. God does so just by speaking. Um, and so when you get to verse 26 and verse 28 about humans being created in the image of God, what's being emphasized there is the royal character of humanity. And um, yeah, am I going on too much? No, here? you're fine. No, no. This? <laughs> you're fine. Ask me a question so that I'm not just rambling about uh, rain me back in. No, this, I think this is great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think having some kind of an understanding, if I, if I would have had this understanding, I think growing up in the church, I think it would have reframed, well, probably would have messed with the church. As If I was a teenager and I heard that, my youth pastor might not have liked me so much. But, yeah. you know. Um, it is good for adolescents. Yeah. But this, I, but so this um, context for P, he's in exile. He's trying to assert that his God is better than everybody else's God. And actually has a plan for the world that is more peaceful. Um, he is saying, basically, humanity in the image of God, we're going to conquer the world and we're going to get it right this time, which is a little disturbing. Um, and so this language of conquest comes from the book of Joshua when Israel supposedly comes oh, into the land and okay. conquers it. Well, they screw that up. They lose the land because of, uh, the authors say, their disobedience to Torah, to God. And so they wind up in exile. So the redo here is that all humanity is now going to be subservient to God and they're going to get this conquest thing right. So uh, the military royal implications are this of this are a little problematic but as i talked about the other night um god is creating an entire ecosystem and each day represents a different piece of that ecosystem yeah. and every single created thing from the swimming things to the creeping things to the flying things and the beasts of the fields gets habitat set aside for it. And it's all very orderly and all declared good. So it's not like this is just put here for humans to do whatever they want with it. Humans are supposed to exercise skilled mastery. So a lot of translations have dominion. I think skilled mastery is maybe better wisdom. So it's a wisdom term. Um, And so to kind of take that and turn it into license to do whatever you want is very inconsistent with the biblical tradition's understanding of wisdom and of, I think, the rest of the chapter, which is all about how glorious this creation is right. and appreciating and celebrating that. Yeah, it's so interesting that you that it sets up this foundation of the beauty of what we have. What what God has created out of nothing isn't just you know, livable, it's amazing. Yeah. And it, and it has diversity and it has just everything that we need to live and grow and to be, live out the image of God. And so 
to think that we're going to just like destroy that makes no sense at all. No. And I don't, as I said, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible is all about um, tending to and caring for this ridiculously precious, but also fragile land. Yeah. So because of the land that they're actually living on, they have to be very careful. There has to be generations of knowledge and skill and there has to be rest time for the land, you know, so they didn't have, of course, pesticides or fertilizer or anything like that. There wasn't the option to just strip it and pull food out of it and then move on. They had to be, um, yeah, really careful, really grateful for what they had and allowing and listening to the land and working with it. Things that organic farmers do today. All the time. Actually. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So I'm curious, even going back to just, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then now the earth was formless and empty. And then how the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep, right? This chaos, the tohu. Tohu. And the (laughs) tehom is the deep. Like this, it's really like this, um, it's not, it's not a good place, you know, like, but yet the spirit of God hovers over it. It's like this, this God's essence is not afraid to get, to get dirty, so to speak. It's, yeah. And these yeah. other creation myths, it's a, uh, it's, it is out of violence. Like it is out of, uh, it's, well, it's going back to like the, the angry, angry parent, right. Versus the, no, like I get kids are going to be pretty shitty, uh, but I'm going to hover over that shit. Right. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> but we do have the flood narrative. I mean, it is going oh, to be wiped out. I do want to. I do want to go there later yeah. if that's okay. Because we, oh, we, we didn't get yeah, through the other night. Yeah. Uh, let me just but, let me just say one thing about the tohu vavohu, which is the chaos and the void. And Janelle, you mentioned the idea of creation creation out of nothing, which is Christian doctrine. Yeah. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not quite creation out of nothing. So there is pre existing chaos, okay, which is often okay. understood as some sort of watery, you know, kind of craziness. And what God does is order that chaos. Yeah. And especially P, because P is sort of obsessed with order, that ordering principle, the separations, that's the other thing. P loves separations. So separating day from night, separating uh, sky from sea, separating Uh swimming things from flying things. So all of that is working with this idea that, Chaos was pre-existent. Okay. Which is, I don't know, I think kind of cool. So they were probably Enneagram ones with, you know, a little OCD. Enneagram ones. I I keep hearing about the Enneagram and I feel like, you know, we're talking about comedians that I don't know. It's okay. Well, evidently I'm a seven, but sevens forget about their number. That's, uh, and the Janelle reminds me that I'm a seven, I guess. (laughs) So this is pretty cool because modern readers and modern interpreters, I'm going to use that very loosely, uh, look at this creation story and say, well, I mean, how, how can you have uh, anything that's actually um, that's living if the sun, the moon and all that stuff wasn't created until the day, what, for that day or four or, you know, it's all out of order. I'm like, that wasn't the point yeah. of the author, the author, you know, there, there's a specific point, And I think people need to hear that is that um, we, we've tried to create science and text and put them together. I'm like, no, it's not really the point of the story, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a very yeah. Yeah. mythical, poetic way of reading the text. And in this sense, it's evidently some OCD <laughs> po- poem, Genesis 1, <laughs> there you go. until you get to 2 and 3. Uh, uh, so, No, that's absolutely can, right. And, and to appreciate it, I think, as 
a liturgical poem. I think that's the genre of the text helps you, I think, make that move away from trying to compare it to scientific thinking. So yes, the the author's point is not to tell you how the world actually came into being. It's to tell you about how great God is, even though it seems like God isn't so powerful. And he's got all his like priestly biases in there. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, not so much biases makes it sound like a negative thing. His priestly concerns and cares and assumptions. So you're yeah. saying it's it's not seven 24-hour days. So the earth isn't 6,000 years I'm gonna, old, I'm going to go with that, yeah. I'm going to walk out of here right now. You're going to destroy my faith, yeah. What's crazy is like the these kinds of things when when people become adults and then you know they go to college or what they don't have to go to college for crying out loud just go on the internet it destroys <laughs> their faith because they're trying to read the Bible from a very modern you know worldview yeah which is unfair to the text I think so doesn't have to be factually true to be true so uh, the word subdue you talked about the other night mm-hmm. it 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 basically does mean subdue I mean in a way yeah it's conquer like, it's, is probably yeah. a better translation yeah. But yet it's in this greater context. So we're like, okay, it's there. Deal with it. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then the dominion part. I mean, It's not I, ideal, but it's there. It's yeah. not the best word. There's a lot of things in the Bible. I'm like, can we Bad just... choice, P. Come on. Didn't yeah. you have a thesaurus on hand? I mean, yeah. Paul says other things that I'm sure you're, as you, you know, you ladies would like to take out as well. So there's that too. <laughs> the whole husband thing you mean and being submissive. Being, being yeah, I could do without church, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Preaching. Should learn in quietness and submission. Oh my goodness. Fuck that. <laughs> Amen, sister. I'll be quiet when you say that. <laughs> uh, so you were talking the other night too. This was, uh, this was fascinating. I think this is a good nerd moment too. The seed bearing grasses in Genesis one. And, and yeah, th- I think this is worth saying again. Oh my God. You want to hear that again? I do. Okay. So I'm on a botany bender. I should probably warn people. And my students are like, I feel like they must be rolling their eyes at me. Like, you've got to be kidding me. My 16 year old son certainly is. But yeah. So one of the things that Genesis one is celebrating is the particular flora of Canaan, of ancient Canaan. We call it all sorts of things to try to get around the political messiness that we are dealing with today in this land. But ancient Canaan, so you've got all this genetic diversity on this little patch of land because you've got contact with Africa, you've got contact with Asia, you've got people bringing all sorts of things over from Europe. But the thing that you get that is unique in this on this patch of land are these grasses that hold on to their seed. So instead of shattering in the wind or whenever they feel like it, these crazy native grasses, they hold their seed. And that means that human beings get to store it and then plant it. And so you get the birth of agriculture in this area in the Fertile Crescent because of these native grasses. And then people start, you know, doing what they do to replicate that and cultivate those kinds of grasses. And then the, oh, and then the, the fruit, the fruit bearing trees, you've also got an insane amount of fruit trees in this region. So in the ancient world, there wasn't a lot of sweet and they've got figs and pomegranates and olives and grapes and probably something else I'm forgetting. So the author is celebrating the particular kind of local landscape, even as he's talking about the creation of all the world. That's cool. It is. Botany moment. Uh, Somebody asked you this the other night too, but I think it's help. This is helpful 
when it comes to the entirety of the Torah and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, where do you see these personalities of the J and the P? Um, and then where do you see them at odds with each other when it comes to the environment, when it comes to the earth, when it comes to the, you know, the land and the fruit and all that kind of stuff, or, or is it all just positive? Yeah. Well, I think, I think both, I think they both have positive and negative, negative implications. So let me start there again. I don't want to do the whole rescuing the Bible thing and make it have to say something that's in line with what I like to hear. Uh, Part of the reason I like to do this is because I like to be challenged by different worldview, different uh, assumptions, different arguments, the whole thing. So, um, so I think they are intentions. So Genesis one and the priestly writer starts with the idea that the world is good that humanity is good. It can be trusted to exercise skilled mastery over all of the beautiful stuff that God has created. And Jay is not so sanguine. Jay thinks that humanity is arrogant and uppity and that they want to be like God. And this to Jay is sort of the problem with humanity. So while you get a much more earthy presentation of the deity in Genesis 2, um, you also get, well, I guess I should say, and you also get a <laughs> sort of earthy understanding of humans as well. They're a little less cleaned up than they are in Genesis 1. So all good. And then all of a sudden they're asking the question, um, why are things so difficult for human beings if they were created in the image of God and everything was created to be good? Why? So the curses, I think, reflect the problems that people have, the questions that they have. So why does it suck to give birth? Like if this is a natural process and this is about people being, you know, fruitful and multiplying, why is it so awful for women and why do so many children die and during childbirth and women too. So, and why is it so hard to get the earth to yield its fruit if there was this copacetic relationship that was ordained from the beginning? And so Jay is kind of coming at P with the hard questions about all this. Janelle, you often have the hard questions. You come at it from a (laughs) tough angle too. I mean, cause yeah, in a part of that, obviously he's from your story, but I mean, when you read the Bible, Genesis one, two, and three, do you? I'm just curious. Do you have have issues with how one is written or how the other is written or how? I'm just well, kind of, I'm kind of curious, how, like where you are today versus where you were. Where uh, I am now your, is just where, um, especially if this is being written in exile in Babylon, like where is the patriarchy asserting itself uh, to annihilate the role of women in all of this? Because there's, I think. I think it's good scholarship. I don't know about that religion and the development of community was often the realm of women for thousands of years. And at some point a turn happened there and that moved into the realm of men and they became more of the priest and more of that um, structuring part of society. And the beauty of Genesis one and I mean, all, especially one is just this beautiful birth and create creation and fertility and multiplication. And, um, the next thing we know, women are being blamed for it. And, and I, I totally like, I get it. Like that is some modernist reading on some of this, but I wonder how much of that is also a fair critique of, 
of what is trying to be done with gender in the midst of all of this. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, I think, well, maybe people don't know this. Okay. So when God says going to create human beings, he says in our image, Mm -hmm. which is sort of crazy, right? Because you're like, who's there? Man and woman, male and female in our image. And so what I think is kind of cool about this is that God is not being depicted as solely male here and not being depicted as completely singular. So there's a, a council of gods imagined here that is male and female, and that's fueling the creation of the men and the women. Now, I know when I go so far as to say, like, you know, Yahweh is sort of male and female, but there's a, because that's just not right. There's a masculine deity and uh, goddesses were basically declared heretical, you know, so the the priests are saying basically all of these women and families who are worshiping goddesses who speak to their concerns about children, about raising families, about um, sickness and about fertility, all these things that are kind of the realm of the household, those practices are now Mm -hmm. declared, you know, uh, abominations, basically. And that's totally problematic. But it's almost like they can't get rid of the feminine aspects of God's character. So even as they try to assert that God is male, there's all this stuff creeping out Mm -hmm. where God is depicted as a mother and God is depicted as nursing Israel. It doesn't come out a lot, but enough that that makes me think there's some sort of irrepressible aspect of trying to construct a deity that has to include the feminine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know how comforting that is. And then on the question of Eve, how do you read the Eve story? Like, is that just a total downer for you? Well, I I mean, I've read a, a bunch of different things about it. And I think that, I think the way that we explain it, especially today in evangelicalism, is our lens on what's actually there. Because, um, and I'm, I cannot pull the word right now, but it's Adam and Eve are alike, one facing each other. They're like shared um beings and that they move forward in that role not as separated or less than and i think i don't know how fair it is to like try to reinterpret this because i think definitely by blaming her and and calling it a curse or using that language even though that's not what's actually happening like it's definitely an oppressive measure and that's that's how it's been used for thousands of years yes, to right. say that women are less than by either by force of um, this fallenness and or by order of creation, which is kind of bullshit because everything... Order meaning like like was created... She was created second, but only in this case because it she's really the crown of creation in the sense of she was the last thing that was created. I mean, so there's always that messing with like, what do we want to see in this story? Yeah. Um, when you go back to feminine traditions and start talking about more mythology i guess is what we would call it you know she was the one that was that was curious yes yes and wanted to know more really the first theologian yeah and wanted to have the wholeness of the world before her and that's beautiful but we have just annihilated that yeah yeah well and her 
the way that she embodies wisdom Mm -hmm. and it's something that I think we tend to miss because we think of her as just being disobedient. But as you say, she's drawn by the beauty of the fruit. Yeah. She is drawn by her curiosity. She wants knowledge. Um, yeah. And that, and that actually plays off of the traditional role of women, which is the keepers of wisdom, the people with skill, the people who could turn food, you know, uh, like raw food yep, into, into cooked a meal. food, into a meal. Right. But we've so, just ripped all the strength out of that. We've yeah. ripped all of the diversity and beauty and power out of that and just made it like you can be a stay at home mom if you want, you know, like, come on. Yeah. There's yeah. so much more there than that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, and have you heard this interpretation? So Phyllis Tribble, do you know Phyllis Tribble? She was like the first feminist biblical scholar. She's one of the early, early women working as a biblical scholar. And so she started reading texts, asking the very questions that you're asking. What the hell is going on here? Is this really as bad as it seems? Um, And she has this sort of interesting interpretation where she says, when God creates the Adam, it's an earth creature. So it's a ball of dirt. It's got some, apparently a nose because God breathes breath into it. And that's about it. And it's not male at this point. Right. It's not. Right. So when God performs the surgery and creates Ish and Isha, Mm -hmm. male and female, that's when the gender differentiation happens. So I think a lot of people think, well, you know, Adam was created first and then Eve was an afterthought. But I like the argument that the differentiation didn't happen until later. And it wasn't just her, the rib, it was the, it was half, it was Mm -hmm. the side, Mm -hmm. it was much more full than the story that we tell today. So I liked it and I'm with y'all, I'm going to do devil's advocate because I know (laughs) we're not talking about the New Testament, but Paul uses the same passage and he talks about male men, Adam as, as a dude being created first. And talk and, and and basically using those rules, not against women, but just like how as a complementarian, as a good complementarian would say, to complement the role of of both husband and wife uh, to make the house work. So, how do we deal with Paul as a Jewish rabbi in the first century? I get it; it's years later, many years later, just a few. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at, at that point, had patriarchy, whatever word they wanted to use back then, had it taken on, taken on a full. Yes. Yeah. You can blame like, Paul. He was Once a product of his Rome culture. Rome is really, I mean, I don't know where the, the line is. You know better than me. Well, so. <laughs> I wish I could say that it doesn't come along until Rome. Wouldn't that be convenient? Um, yeah. But no, it's well in place in the Hebrew Bible as well. Um, so, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if... Genesis 2 can be redeemed for women. I think we can ask different. I think we can see different things in it, but I still think it is imbued with patriarchy. Yeah. And, um, yeah. <laughs> you want to say well, just more about there, that? Because yeah. there, was, there was culture before that story. That story, we've been trained to read that as like the beginning of culture, but... 
that's right. not reality. Yeah, God said it from the sky, and um, you know Moses put it down. I mean, that's right. That's a yeah, fundamentalist yeah. for type. Right. Well, I think the important thing to do with Genesis two and three is to say there are traditional gender roles that are baked into that text. Yeah, but that's not what the text is about. No. I don't think. I think what they're trying to do there is say. What does it mean for humans to gain knowledge? And Jay is really itchy about knowledge, which I think is fascinating. We're thinking about AI and we're thinking about, you know, like, I mean, even farther back than that with nuclear weapons and the kinds of things that humans can create that are really problematic. And we keep thinking that if we just get more knowledge, we'll be better. And Jay is just, that just drives him to distraction, I think. So his point is that knowledge is both a gift and a curse Mm -hmm. for humans. And so they don't get to live in this garden because they're human and they want knowledge and they want to be not just totally obedient to God. They want to be able to, to use their own reason in order to sort things out. So, so I think if we say that's what Jay is wondering about, it kind of shifts it from what a lot of conservative types have done, which is to say this is about how women are inferior and how like we're all cursed thanks to Eve's bad choice. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode with Amy Erickson, and we'll conclude our conversation next time. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media. And if you need to learn more about Brew Theology, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. Thanks so much.